Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting edge, state of the art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Hover.com. Find a domain name for your idea. Go to Hover.com and you will get 10% off of your first purchase. Again, that is Hover.com slash Canada Land, offer code Canada Land. The reason that I can't take the term social justice warrior seriously as an insult, as a sarcastic burn, as in, look at this SJW, this silly little person who thinks they're going to change the world by correcting my grammar. The reason I can't take it seriously in that way is because there are, in fact, people who fight for social justice and win. I have seen it happen in my lifetime. When I was a kid, it was okay to hate queers. Before I even knew what gay meant, I had absorbed and used homophobic slurs casually. No adult ever stopped me. It was fine. But then, because of annoying people who complained and whined and protested and lobbied and rioted, because of social justice warriors, 
there is social justice for LGBTQ people. I mean, this is a civil rights movement that I have seen succeed in my lifetime. Right? Maybe not. The queer media, the newspapers and magazines and websites from which advocates fought for social justice are a shadow of what they once were. There is hardly anything left. In a minute, I will be joined by a panel of journalists who represent or cover queerness from a bunch of different angles and who will help me understand what has happened to the queer media. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Larry Jones, Adam Kelway, Jonathan Studeman, Doug Chinnery, Nicole Koslowski, James Hyatt, Jennifer Glasgow, and Amanda Shore. Amanda, why did you decide to be awesome? I support Canada Land because, as a freelance writer with a voice in the Canadian media, it reminds me of the responsibilities that come with the job. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. And this episode is brought to you by Hover. Hover is a solution to a problem. The problem is that you need to host your domain somewhere. You need to find a domain. You need to host it. You need email associated with that domain. We use Hover here at Canada Land. It's the best. There are other people who provide this service and they provide other things. They provide annoying upselling. They try to get you to pay for things you should be getting for free, like privacy when people want to see the address of who owns a website. Hover just gives you that stuff. They have amazing support. They help you find the right URL. Because after all, a lot of URLs are taken at .com addresses or .net, but what about .pizza, .ninja, .horse? Think about it. They have over 400 of these things. 
Once you find your domain, use Hover Connect to set up your domain automatically with your website in just a few clicks. Guys, this works if you already have a website and you don't like your domain provider. You can just switch it over. It's very easy. And you will get 10% off of your first purchase when you go to hover.com slash CanadaLand and use the offer code CanadaLand. Again, hover.com slash CanadaLand, offer code CanadaLand, hover domain names for your ideas. This episode is also brought to you by our original sponsor, the company that helped me start this podcast, FreshBooks. FreshBooks is a Canadian company that has also provided a solution to a problem, and that problem is that you have to bill people if you are a freelancer or a small business. But then they've gone beyond that solution, and they have basically become my mission control as a small business person. I'm not a small business person. I run a small business, okay? Anyhow, I use FreshBooks for a whole bunch of things. When I have expenses that I need to file, I take little pictures of the expense. I fill in the details, and very quickly, it automatically gets attached to the invoice, and I get paid quicker. You get paid quicker with FreshBooks because people can pay you via credit card. You get paid quicker because, and this is the weird circuitry of this, you can see when people open your invoice, and now because of ads for fresh books on podcasts like this and elsewhere, clients know that you can see when they open up your invoice. So as soon as they've opened it, the clock is ticking. They know that I know that they know. Anyhow, you get the picture. It all amounts to getting paid quicker and getting a bird's eye view of your entire business. What is coming in? What is going out? You will have a quick and easier time during tax season, as I just did, if you use FreshBooks. Why not try it? It is free for 30 days. You don't even have to give them a credit card. Go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. When you do become a customer, tell them that CanadaLand sent you. Thank you, FreshBooks. I'm James Dubrow, longtime organized crime reporter, longtime reporter with Extra, used to write for The Body Politic. I'm Archie Mann. Right now, I'm the news reporter for Extra. I'm Eric Calenti. I'm the editor of this magazine. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I guess to sort of set the stage for a conversation, I'll tell you through my perspective. Growing up as a straight guy in Toronto, my conception was that I almost like witnessed through my lifetime queer issues and queer people go from a fringe thing that you only really heard of through playground insults and, and it was totally accepted to be prejudiced and negative towards gay people. And I feel like I witnessed this complete evolution to total acceptance. I watched Ellen kiss on TV <laughs> and it went from something that you whisper or make fun of somebody to something where it was totally cool to go and celebrate alongside gay people at the Pride Festival. And I was under the impression up till last summer that we had basically reached a societal consensus and everything was cool in the gang. <laughs> and then Black Lives Matter protested at Pride, blocked the festival, and made demands. And I became aware of a rift, not just in society, but in, it seems, the queer community, where this is either just the most bullying, aggressive, hostile, like literally raining on a parade, <laughs> making about us, hijacking all of these epithets where everybody was agreed that this is great and except for this one obstreperous group that was making it all about them. And on the other side, voices saying, excuse me, no, this is what Pride is actually about. And it's a rift that for our conversation today, which is about queer media and media and queerness, the media seemed to take one side of. The mainstream media or the gay media? Very important clarification. The mainstream media seemed to be firmly on the side that this was 
not a good thing. And I feel like we've been talking about that one incident ever since. And I guess I just want to check my conception of things against the conceptions of people who know a lot more about it than I do and check if I have a clear understanding of what this rift is, if indeed we agree that there is one. I mean, you're not wrong that the legacy media definitely took it all one way. I mean, like you said, the use of the word hijack, blackmail, all kinds of loaded language. That was absolutely how most big publications and broadcast interpreted this event. But I think it was very different, both from the queer media perspective and also a lot of the new media that's been coming up in Canada. So BuzzFeed, Vice, and certainly at Extra, we had a very different kind of take on this because we'd been covering one BLM as a queer group for a little while. And also, you know, these are not new issues by any means. You go back, look at the archives of Extra or the Body Politic 10, 20, 15, 30 years, and these issues pop up over and over again. Yeah, the other thing I would say about those words, hijack, blackmail, the media didn't pull it out of thin air. There were a lot of people, everyday gays, if you will, not not the activists, not the people at Extra uh, or the sophisticated people who were very pissed off by what happened that day. Uh, and they use words like that. I couldn't believe how close to racism a lot of people were. How dare they hijack our parade? I heard those words, blackmail. That's where I'm sure a lot of the mainstream media got it from. They didn't just invent it. You know, people were grumbling, but when I found out what it was, it seemed logical that a, that a protest group in a gay pride march would protest. And I'd worked with them a couple of days earlier as a marshal in a trans march, and they were very good. They were very activists. They did a die-in, which no one complained about. So I think a lot of people, it just came out of the bolt of the blue for a lot of everyday gay people. You've got to separate that everyday gay people from the activists and the even extra, which is very activistically inclined. And you can see that this is where it came from. I think, yeah, the one thing that the mainstream media seems to forget is that Pride did start as a protest. It was not, you know, a big celebratory parade. I'm sure James can speak more to that. So maybe that's part of why, you know, a lot of, as you say, everyday gays, but even, you know, the straight cisgender folks who were reporting on this, you know, seem to forget that it was not the corporate sort of celebration that it is today. And and maybe that's part of where your misconceptions come from too, Jesse, that you saw Pride evolve into this party and there's, you know, there's celebrations, there's performances, but there's still an activist side of it that we need to address. Uh, and I think Black Lives Matter brought that to the fore for the first time in, in a little while. Yeah, I wouldn't call them a hijacker or a blackmail. I'd say they're Absolutely a catalyst, not. you know, to certain people in the gay community to, who felt like you that we had got there where everything was done, but it wasn't. You know, it is never done. Yeah, and let's be clear, a lot of these comments that were coming out and a lot of the way that the legacy media portrayed this was I think a function of anti-black racism that pervades the media, Canadian society. And that was really the fundamental thing that was operating there. More than sort of misconceptions about LGBT issues, it was just out and out racism. And a lot of activists have have used the term of racism when anyone opposes this. And I think there are valid concerns about it all. So I don't know if I'd say the Toronto Star is racist or CBC is racist, although Pride admitted it was racist, which amazed me, but they did. And I mean, remember when queers against Israeli apartheid tried to usurp the parade Mm -hmm. and I got involved in getting them back in the parade, but that got very complicated and a lot of people hated them, you know, and protested them. James, you bring up an interesting point. I wonder if like the level of anger and hostility directed towards Black Lives Matter Toronto after that 
was about a bigger disturbance. They had disturbed this concept that maybe I was sharing in, that pride belonged to everybody. And it was funny to hear city councillors, like a straight guy like John Campbell, saying, this is about inclusivity. Like, somebody ruined his pride. <laughs> like, Which he's never been to. He's not even <laughs> paid. He's not, no, that's ridiculous. From the media side of this, you know, I, I read uh, Alan O'Connor, who's a media prophet, Trent, writing in Now Magazine about his condemnation of CBC for running a news report where only... John Campbell in a report about pride, only the city councilor who was just had words of absolute outrage and dismissal of Black Lives Matter, that was the only voice included. And though in other CBC reports, they went further than that, you know, back to this idea that legacy media did plant itself on one side of this. There is a bit of that, I think. Uh, but also there was sensationalism. And, you know, the media likes a good story. Uh, there was a lot of uh, simplifying a very complex story, I think. I mean, the more I got into it, the more I understood it. And there was a context, as, as he said earlier, which in a lot of the people in Black Lives Matter are gay and trans mm-hmm. and lesbian. So they're, and they're, very, <laughs> they're very good activists. I saw them whip up a crowd, you know, in the trans night rally, and they were excellent. I think Black Lives Matter makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And I think it forced a lot of people, reporters especially, to confront a lot of their, you know, racism or, or, you know, whatever beliefs they might have. And I think that's part of it, too. Yeah, I mean, I I think you're actually onto something there, Jesse, in terms of we in Canada, we like to use a lot of issues. And I think LGBT equality is one of them to kind of pat ourselves on the back that we have made progress. But generally what we're talking about when we're talking about, say, LGBT equality is equality for older white gay men of a certain class background. That's certainly not the case for trans folks. It's certainly not the case for women, for black and indigenous, uh, queer, trans and two-spirit folks. They don't have the same public visibility. They don't have the same kind of economic clout. And we like to say, well, you know, we have these elected representatives who are gay. You know, our prime minister's marching the pride parade. Isn't that nice? But, you know, at the same time, that's a prime minister who is maintaining a bunch of policies that are detrimental to the LGBT community. And that doesn't get talked about very often. And of course, issues within LGBT communities, because we talk about it as if it's one community in legacy media, which is, of course, on its face absurd. There are issues and conversations that are happening within LGBT communities that don't really make it out into the sort of broader bubble to the surface of the rest of Canadian media. And I think a lot of that gets missed. Some very good points, Archie. And, and, you know, uh, Tim McCaskill raised that in Now Magazine uh, about the class uh, differences with the younger radicals. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are economically impoverished and a lot of them are racialized and we have to get used to that. Yeah. You know, the older, uh, and the other point he made, which was a sort of class argument, was that uh, we lived in condos and were somewhat detached. So we had sort of made it. Uh, And it's it's never quite true. There are a lot of minorities in the gay community, many, many minorities who who haven't made it. But yeah, I mean, it is partly a celebration. It always has been. There are things to celebrate. Yeah, there, the very, there has been progress. The very first picnic we had on the island in August, early August 1971 was a celebration. Yeah. It was called a gay gaggle or something like that. And uh, it made it into Gorilla Magazine. It was for the body politic. Uh, any rate, you know, it is a celebration, but it's also a, poli- it always has been a political march. You know, there are these older folks who have kind of fought the fights. Things are better for them. Yes. 
But there are also lots of older black and indigenous LGBT folks who things have not improved very much for them. They've been fighting these fights for a very long time. Their voices were often ignored. And you you can even go back to fights that were happening in the body politic in the 80s, in which a lot of, say, black, queer and trans folks were were feeling excluded. They were feeling like sexual liberation was being uh, given primacy over racial justice and other issues. You know, it's just now we're hearing some of these voices, but people have always been fighting about this. People have always been trying to tie in racial justice and sexual liberation. It's only now that the mainstream media and, and a lot of the rest of us are trying to scratch the surface. And also, who are these folks who are, you know, bombarding our comment sections with hateful comments every time we write about BLM. Yeah. They're generally non-black folks, right? And it's not just white folks. It's East, Southeast Asian, South Asian people as well, and a variety of folks. But generally, it's still people who didn't live those experiences. Yeah, in defense of the body politic crowd, they did try. You know, it was a much different world in 1981, say. And they did try. I remember during the um, protests against the bathhouse raids, which got us all fired up, Tim McCaskill, who was one of the Body Politic Collective and others, uh, Chris Birchall, really strove to bring in racialized people. They brought in the widow of a of a black man who had been killed and put him right on the stand there. So they intersectional, I think is the word nowadays. They they did that then in 1981. Now, a lot of gay people didn't understand that, but we, we rallied to Mrs. Johnson, you know. Mm-hmm. I do think that there's been a lot of erasure, though, in, in yes. history for LGBTQ people. I mean, I think of Stonewall and how uh, their black trans women played such a huge role in that. But Black Lives Matter has been protesting and they've been asking for change for a very long time, which is something I think a lot of people seem to forget and overlook, you know? As you say, pride is political. Uh, you talk about, I was at Stonewall that night. I was a student at Columbia. Mm-hmm. I was walking by and I knew some of the people in the in the who were rioting and they were, a lot of them were black trans, not transgendered, but transvestites. Uh, mm-hmm. They were drag queens and hustlers, and I knew some of them. It was quite a thing. They weren't pushed aside exactly, but what happened when gay liberation came in, it was all about mostly gay men's liberation. Mm-hmm. And uh, somehow trans people didn't fit in that. But they came yeah. back. They st- uh, Marsha P. Johnson started a movement with uh, Sylvia Rivera mm-hmm. uh, back in the 90s, 80s and 90s. They came back and, and started things. This is entirely my fault that we've gone off the rails. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. And this is fascinating stuff. One thing that pops up from this is that there's a lot less specifically queer media than there used to be. Mm-hmm. And though we're getting the contrary voices to butt up against how legacy media presented this particular conflict, I think we mostly heard of it through social media, extra notwithstanding. Is that some indication back to the original conceit that like maybe all this queer media has disappeared because people don't feel they need it anymore. There's certainly as many queer people as there ever were. Have those voices been integrated into the mainstream media? Why is queer media as marginalized now at a place where queer people are arguably, though they're still marginalized, marginalized less than they have been ever before? Because media is a failing enterprise in general, and it's really hard to make money. I mean, Extra right now, I think we're one of the few sort of small media outlets in the country that have that are in the black, that have a business model that works. Uh, because we own squirt.org. If you want to go cruising, please sign up. It pays my <laughs> nice. Um 
And, and, and that works for us. But even we were feeling the pressure. We had to cut the print editions about two years ago because advertising money has gone. I think it's probably as simple as that. But, you know. Is that it, though? I mean, there are like it used to be that it would be very hard to find a place to discuss these issues. It played such a central role. I mean, really, in any kind of uh, marginalized or subculture, finding the newspaper that spoke to a community. Now that's not quite so true anymore, right? Uh, when I wrote the article for now on the state of gay media, I was looking at this wonderful lesbian publication called Siren. We had Before that, we had Rights, which was a collective. We had Extra, of course, and Fab, all dealing with certain unique elements of our identity and sexuality. And now we just basically have Extra. And we do have In uh, Magazine, which is once a month, and it's a lifestyle magazine. And it does deal a little with that, although it's pretty, shall we say, uh, bourgeois. <laughs> There are definitely more spaces in legacy media and especially in new media where they take these issues more seriously, include queer voices, all that sort of stuff. Lawrence Trapagiel in uh, BuzzFeed last year wrote a good piece about the demise of AfterEllen.com, which was one of the few sort of uh, lesbian websites out there that, that really focused on lesbian and, and queer pop culture for queer women. And they had a hard time because advertisers just have this idea that uh, queer women don't spend money in the way that gay men do. And so even homophobic uh, attitudes, misogynistic attitudes in advertising have made queer media a difficult enterprise for certain segments uh, of uh, you know LGBT communities. We have a unique identity and there's certain coming out stories and things about sex that's very uneasy for the straight media to deal with. So I used to go to Extra when it was a newspaper to read reviews, to see about mm-hmm. certain movies about taboo subjects. Mm-hmm. A lot of what we call taboo in society is very acceptable in gay life. <laughs> I won't go into what that is. So I thought that was important. Scandalizing me, so please. Yeah, right. It's true, but yeah, there isn't much like even just sex writing outside of places like Extra and a little bit like Vice Extra, and BuzzFeed, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Like we had a very beautiful column about from a genderqueer person about piss play, which go. was actually like... And- I don't know. It kind of broke my heart. <laughs> and I saw something on puppy play in some <laughs> yeah. count, some bar rag, but at least it's there. And Fab used to do it. Are queer people less political than they used to be? I mean, I feel like there was a time when you had to be political if you were out. It was an enforced politicization. In one of the first issues of the late Grid newspaper, there was a piece by a young writer saying, I don't need the village anymore. There is no straight society and gay society. There's there's society now. And uh, a lot of the trappings or the community-based stuff or the politics, I'm glad it existed in the past, but I don't need it. Is that something that is at play in, sure, in these dynamics? Sure, that's, that's, that's a part of it. I mean, there are a lot of younger people who are, are not as political or looking for their careers. And, and there's a lot of businesses, you know. I mean, there's still a um, police liaison committee with um, the gay and lesbian community and the police. Um, based very quietly meeting once a month with the police. And that's mostly business owners and uh, uh, various gay organizations that have a stake. Yeah, but is that political? No, it's not political. (laughs) It's more, let's celebrate, you know, and let's promote, let's sell more beer, let's sell more... uh, Yeah, but it's back to Arshi's point before. I mean, maybe one of the reasons why progress has happened so quickly for some gay people is because they were recognized as a killer demographic. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I'm a young gay person. I feel like yes. I feel like I'm still quite political, and I feel like a lot of my friends and acquaintances who are LGBTQ still feel the same way. I don't know. I don't think it's changed all that much. I mean, 
of course, we have a bit more equality in Canada. You know, gay marriage is legal, et cetera, et cetera. But there's still so many fights. And I mean, like, I think the Black Lives Matter protest at the Pride Parade is proof that we still have so much work to do. Especially now, I think it's more, I wouldn't say acceptable, but there's more folks coming out as non-binary, more folks coming out as transgender. Mm-hmm. And there are still so many fights within those communities, especially. So, of course, it's still important. Uh, Erica, I agree with you. And a lot of young people are political. Uh, Tim McCaskill wrote that about very eloquently in now the mm-hmm. other day but you got to realize and don't don't put it under the table but you got to realize a lot of everyday gay men do not accept that trans is a major part of the movement they, they yeah. I just saw several things yesterday everyday what a trans do what a trans <laughs> I saw some really transphobic stuff there and they don't understand that it goes back to all time really mm-hmm. it's not just something that developed recently but we recently put it in in the movement you know in the last 20 years or so but uh, you can go back thousands of years that were trans so mm-hmm. and they certainly were at stonewall but eric it seemed like you were flagging that definition of everyday gay man as well yeah i mean you know the the you know middle-aged white gay guy sure i bet like life is a lot better now than it was 20, 30 years ago, but not everyone falls under that category anymore. You know, sure. you know, there's probably plenty of, you know, racialized folks. There are plenty of queer women, you know, that are experiencing still a lot of discrimination. And that's not to say that gay men aren't experiencing any discrimination, but I think well, we still have it. Yeah. But I, I mean, I'm sure that it's a bit easier, I think, these days to be a gay white guy than it was back then. And there's more acceptance for that than there is for other communities within the the larger umbrella. Okay, so we've got those Absolutely. these factors at play where you know maybe some people don't need to be as politicized as they used to be because they're the lucky ones who don't right. face the same level. Uh, we have what Arshi brought up to bring this back to the media angle of this that media is just in trouble all around. You butt up against the idea that people are less political, queer people are more apolitical than they used to be. But you're the editor of this magazine, mm-hmm. so you are going to be more political <laughs> than your average person. And this magazine is a fraction of what it used to be in terms of its resource. It is and readership. Uh, yeah. used to be one of the Great, great radical. It's still popular. a heck of a I say it's still pretty great. It's still pretty good, but I mean, it's not. It doesn't have the visibility it used to have. Mm. Like extra doesn't have the visibility it used to have. It used to be on the street in every coffee shop. We used to discuss it. If you missed it online, which I did watch, uh, I don't read it as regularly now. That it's not there in the coffee shops and in the steam baths, and you know, mm-hmm. I miss the visceral presence of that newspaper. I mean, maybe we are talking about a media-wide problem, and maybe it's just shifted to social media. But, you know, this is happening concurrently with there is more discussion of these issues in mainstream press and perhaps more sympathetic coverage Mm. and inclusive coverage. And also, maybe there's more people who are out and actually reporting the news and writing for mainstream publications. Is is it possible that things are getting better and that's why? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. They're getting better and they're not so better. I mean, it's it's a weird situation. I mean, as she says, for trans people, it's not... Great. Yeah. But if those everyday gays I talk about who are the ones that go drink and pick up tricks and have a good time and pride, you know, uh, these aren't political people. Uh, they're not too concerned about trans, but trans are concerned about trans and so am I. Yeah. Uh, they're part of a community. They're not They're not getting uh, ahead. In fact, they're being abused by police and, and others. And that's that's a serious problem. You know, I don't know whether folks are more political or less political now. Mm -hmm. I can't really compare. But as somebody who kind of reports on activism, especially in Toronto, amongst LGBT folks kind of day in and day out, there's still a lot going on out there. There's still a lot of sort of new movements, groups, issues that are popping up. But one thing that I do think I noticed just, you know, kind of 
in terms of like reading back on some of this history compared to now, I think there's a frayed sense of solidarity amongst various communities. If you look back at the 80s during, you know, the HIV AIDS epidemic hitting, lesbians were at the forefront of fighting that epidemic, like alongside obviously gay men who were mostly affected. But lesbians didn't have to get involved in that. That wasn't really their fight. They were not affected by that disease in the same way. And yet there was that kind of sense of solidarity there. And that's something that I don't think I see as much. But I also might just have kind of, you know, rose-colored glasses looking backwards. So One of the things that there has been progress on is uh, inclusivity, as mentioned, in the media itself and in mainstream media. But this focus on identity in the newsroom and inclusivity and having queer people reporting the news so that it gets reported accurately. I wonder if it isn't a double-edged sword because we've seen the emergence of like this almost weaponized queerness where you've got your like Milo's (laughs) or Sue Ann Levy or, you know, people who identify as queer or gay and are very conservative. And sometimes their politics are radical, radical right politics and are almost weaponizing their queerness to say that, well, if even I, a gay person, a queer person, think this is true, and it gives permission to other people, I think, who cheer on for Milo, that like, I got no problem with this guy, but we ideologically are of a mind. I'm wondering if if things haven't gone down the wrong path. I mean, and Arsha, you're a straight man who reports on- Sure am. LGBT- You've outed me to the country. (laughs) Have I? (laughs) Yeah, I didn't know that. It's but, irrelevant almost these days, you know? Have I outed you to the country? No, no, it's out fine. As a stra- yes, uh, yes. Yeah. I'm out as a straight man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Does this reveal maybe like a problematic preoccupation with how somebody personally identifies as opposed to what they're saying and what they're reporting? I mean, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. I think that including queer voices, especially in legacy media, is kind of essential and probably even more than that kind of editors. Like, I wouldn't work at Extra Now if... Almost all of my editors weren't queer if the editorial direction wasn't set by folks, if I didn't report to an organization to whom, you know, those identities are kind of central. But, you know, going back to this kind of weaponization, I don't think it's really about identity politics in the way that you're saying. I think it's sort of a process of when folks get accepted more into the broader mainstream, when they get seen as, oh, they're normal, they're one of us. Your politics often become more conservative. If you look at France right now, a third of gay men voted for Marine Le Pen, Mm -hmm. a straight up fascist. And that would be inconceivable 20 years ago, I think. But also there have always been conservative voices. But don't you think Milo is very cynically judo flipping identity politics? Isn't that a conscious strategy? Yeah, but when hasn't that happened, right? (laughs) But he's more of an entertainer. He's an alternate right entertainer. He's he's pursuing his own career and using these things to to glorify himself. Yeah, I mean, he's he's merely an entertainer, I say. Mm -hmm. No one takes him too seriously, I don't think. I (laughs) I don't know about that. I hope not. Well, some of the Trump people People do, I'm sure. Bird's eye view on Canadian media a year out from this rash of stories around the Black Lives Matter protest. Has anything been learnt? Is there any conclusion to be had from this? Like, what do you think the fallout has been? I think it was pretty bad. I don't know if many lessons have been learned. I mean, the most frustrating thing I think watching as somebody who was reporting this uh, for the last year was just just misrepresentation of basic facts. For months, media outlets, columnists, editorials all reported that police were banned from the parade after the January AGM, which was just not true. And it took a statement from Pride before the vote at city council kind of came up to say, look, police were not banned. Read the motion. It was uniforms, guns, 
and police vehicles in the booths. Which yeah. were a big thing. That brought in a couple of thousand dollars a year to yeah. Pride. But, the you know, the, the basic facts were misrepresented. And I just that's what I couldn't wrap my head around. Like, just do the regular things that you do in journalism and you would have much better stories around this and much better coverage. And I honestly I don't think folks have learned a lot. Like, you know, Pride is a symbolic battlefield. This was partially I think this protest was about both issues around people being uncomfortable with armed police and these kind of convoys coming down the parade, but also about, you know, making this kind of political gesture that we're not going to accept police in our parade in the way that they want to be there unless you make some serious changes. And I think we can see from a lot of great reporting that's done in places like the Star or the Globe that police do need to make some serious changes. And yet the editorials and the columnists, they didn't even take their own reporters into account and they just wrote, no, inclusivity, we need the police. We like them. And the star is and very good at exposing police problems. Exactly. And that's what I couldn't get. The star is running editorial saying yeah, the police yeah, yeah. should march. And yet their reporters and are the covering globe. police abuse after abuse. And I don't know. It was just very frustrating to watch from afar. And, you know, I don't have personal opinions myself about whether how or whether police should participate. But I definitely think these concerns should be taken seriously. And I just don't see that happening. We have serious fissures in our community now, I think. And I don't I mean, the whole community, every, everything, whatever that is, so many communities, and it's going to have to be sorted out. I say by next year, and the new executive director of Pride, Olivia Numaha, is actually working on this. She's meeting with the chief. She's meeting with Daniel Bottineau and other lesbian gay cops who she feels are part of the community. And she's right. They are part of the community. So it has to be sorted out. Otherwise, what's going to happen is you're going to have, like in Montreal, two Prides or maybe three. But maybe Pride itself has outlived its usefulness. I don't know. As a as a thing, you know, it's a celebration. There are more parties. The bars are open later. A lot of people making a lot of money off of Pride, you realize. And a lot of corporations are. Now, they're going to get at that sometime. Very corporatized. Okay, any last thoughts on how or if things have changed since last year? I agree with Arshi that I think there's still a lot of work to be done. And I think just in a broader sense, since we were talking about queer media and, and LGBTQ journalism, I think that there's a lot of work to be done there as well. I think we need mm. to get more queer people of color. We need to get more trans folks into these legacy newsrooms. I think I agree with Arshi, you know, BuzzFeed, Vice, you know, Torontoist is a community publication that I worked for. So I have a bit of a bias. Now Magazine but I, does some Now work. Magazine, they've been doing really good jobs. Yeah. And I think that places like the Star and the Globe and the Post, CBC can all take cues from them. Yeah. Um, there's still so much work to be done. And I think it's important to consider what we still need to do. Yeah, you're, you're quite correct. I agree with her. Guys, thanks for taking me through this all. And thanks for your time today. Thanks, Jesse. Thank thanks, you. Jesse. That was your Canada Land Show. I hope you liked it. Email me with your feedback at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send me and I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. News stories published there all the time. Check it out. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. Commons and the Imposter are off for the summer. They will be back after Labor Day. In the meantime, we are developing some new stuff for you and Shortcuts will be up on Thursday and I will be back with another Canada Land on Monday. Syndication by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Today's episode is produced by Ali Graham. If you like what we do, please support us. 